I need to fact check myself. How long have I been doing it? Welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel, and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. April is National Poetry Month, and today we're excited to bring you a conversation with poet and book publicist Abigail Wellhouse. Abigail is the author of Bad Baby, published by Dancing Girl Press, Too Many Humans of New York, Bottle Cap Press, and Memento Mori, a poem-comic collaboration with Evan Johnston. Her poems have been published in The Toast, Yes Poetry, Ghost Ocean Magazine, and elsewhere, and her writing about food and money has been published in Edible Brooklyn, Edible Manhattan, The Billfold, and more. Subscribe to her secret poems, Tiny Letter, at tinyletter.com slash wellhouse, W-E-L. H-O-U-S-E. She works for Scott Manning and Associates as a senior publicist handling book publicity and social media consulting for authors. She also works for Gallup NYC as a horseback riding instructor. You can find her at wellhouse.nyc, which is her website, as well as her tiny letter that we already mentioned, and her Twitter, which is a fun and amusing mix of all of her different interests. We really enjoyed our talk and hope you enjoy listening. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's my pleasure. So the first thing that we always ask is, as you know, like the podcast is sort of about balancing writing and your day job, basically. And so the first thing we usually ask is around basically what is your day job? Kind of come into a little bit of of background on that. And what do you feel like, you know, we're trying to be super honest about kind of the benefit of having a day job as well. So like, what do you think that you get from your day job that kind of comes into your writing as well? Sure. Okay. So I work full-time as a book publicist, and so it introduces me to a lot of books that sometimes are unusual or not automatically what I would pick up, and it tends to be a lot of nonfiction. So I am essentially tasked with becoming an expert on one very specific nonfiction topic in the book in the sense that I can then explain it to somebody who might be interviewing them, might not have time to read the whole book. So it's it's exciting challenge that way. And I also work part-time as a therapeutic horseback riding instructor, just for something completely different. And for that job, it's something that you have to be completely focused on what you're doing, which is not often my brain's natural way to be. So I, I really like that aspect of it. And being around the horses and being around our, our riders. And, and in terms of specifically good things for my writing, I'd say that for book publicity, I learned that you can just email people you don't know sometimes and ask for something, and sometimes it works out really well. So that's, I think, a very useful thing to learn. And for the horse stuff, I'm working on a novel now about teenagers who work at a horseback riding camp. And so it's been fun to be able to apply some of the specific horse knowledge I've picked up over the years and work it into my writing. Oh, that's really cool. And yeah, I think the thing that you said about the fact that you can kind of email people and ask them anything you want to, I think that that is something that like if you're that in the outside of the book world like you're reading books or whatever it feels like they're really far away because you know they're on the other side of this huge industry or whatever and you kind of forget that they're just people so that's a I think a really good insight right and it took me a while even to realize that even when I first got into book publicity because I realized that I could 
also write to publishers and authors that I like and see if I could interview them. And often, especially if they're promoting a book, they'd want to do it. So I got to interview Francesca Leah Block for The Toast, which was amazing. I've been a huge fan of her since the 90s. And so you can you can do that. It's kind of, it's amazing. And I end up convincing a lot of friends of mine who would want to get into book reviewing. Yes, absolutely. Write to the publisher, get a review copy. That's exactly what we want on the other side. So it's it's a good good thing to see firsthand that you're doing actually something good, not just getting free stuff. You know, you're getting free stuff because you're doing a job. Yeah. 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 And people, I mean, when someone writes a book, it's because they are interested in the topic and they love it and they are, you know, in nonfiction, they are experts and, you know, in fiction as well, but they want to talk about their work and they're proud of it and they're excited to have a chance to share with other people. And, you know, people, people love to talk about themselves. Absolutely. I think we get into this mindset, especially with writers that we really like, that they're these untouchable celebrities. And most people, if you read their book and you tell them you like their book and, you know, if you do like it, like that's a really great place, I think, to sometimes start a conversation. And people are often really excited to talk to someone who is willing to sort of engage with them a little bit on that. Because you feel sometimes when you're writing, like you're shouting into this void. And so I think interactions like that remind you that there are real people reading your work if you're an author who has published work and that's really cool and have you been on the sort of receiving end of that I mean obviously from us for example but (laughs) maybe by other people like I don't know how does it feel when people contact you you know I'm at a point where it doesn't happen extremely often but I really love it when it does I, I, I was very excited to get an email from you guys I was very excited to get an email from tiny letter forwards the first time anyone ever wrote to me and asked me to submit poems to their journal That's wild. I love that. Yeah, it's like the sort of, I don't know, I must feel like you really made it or whatever when people are contacting you for your work. Which is funny for poetry. It's I've had a lot of conversations about how poetry is odd and that almost nobody makes money from poetry. And so the idea of making it in poetry is odd because often it's not particularly tied to money. Sometimes it can be, of course. You know, there are some poets who sell a lot of books and also I think on another level people are trying to get jobs in academia and people are trying to get fellowships and so forth but I think success in poetry feels sometimes more like based around popularity than money or prestige even. So which came first for you then? Did you approach publicity as a way to you know because poetry wasn't something that was going to make you money or did you come to poetry after you'd already gotten into your career in the book industry or did it just sort of happen unrelated to each other i've always written poetry and it's fun sometimes to find really really early poetry like the last time i was at my parents house i found a whole bunch of haikus that i must have written around seventh grade and some of them were really dark like one of them was about a hummingbird looking for nectar and searching forever that is dark but i've, I've always written poetry and so i don't know that i necessarily saw the two as related although i have ended up writing poems that came out of books that i read for work and that i worked on for work like for example i worked on this book called Madness and Memory, and it's by Dr. Stanley Prusner, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering prions, the building blocks of Alzheimer's and Mad Cow. And 
I ended up writing two poems that had mad cow in it, and it took me a minute to realize, oh, right, I am reading a lot about that right now. And those ended up both in my chapbook, Bad Baby. That's cool. So we're very curious because neither of us are poets. We're very curious about like your writing process in terms of poetry and how you, obviously the theme with the theme of the podcast, like how you fit it into the day and, and that sort of thing, but just in general, your process. Sure. I think poetry is in many ways easier to fit into a day than longer writing. Because in terms of writing a draft of a poem, you can do that in one sitting. And you may go back and continually edit and tinker. But if you just want to get something down, that's something that you can generally do fairly quickly. And so in terms of fitting it in, I have a couple parts of my routine that I really try to stick to. One is that I do a variation on Julia Cameron's morning pages, which for I think probably most people who listen to this podcast know what it is, but in case you don't, it's writing three pages longhand every day. And I realized that the three pages would vary according to the width of the notebook. So I ended up finding myself more able to do it consistently if I did one page in a pretty small notebook. And that was enough to kind of break me out of any morning anxiety spiral that I would find myself in or if I was starting to procrastinate and do something else, sometimes that was a really nice way to bring me back to my mind and be able to do something more productive from there. But I think for poetry also, I end up keeping a list of ideas and often I'll have what I call orphan lines where they're lines that don't actually fit into any poem yet, but I'll write a note either in that same notebook that I do my morning pages or I'll write a note on my phone, just I'm on the subway and I think, oh yeah, that would be an interesting line. And sometimes they end up nowhere, sometimes they end up somewhere, sometimes they end up somewhere five years from now. And I mean, the hard part, of course, and the challenge, of course, that you guys talk about all the time is time and having any kind of sustained time to write also, which I've been thinking about more seriously now that I'm also trying to write a novel. And I asked a friend of mine for advice now that I'm in the editing phase. And she said, well, do you have any big blocks of time ahead of you? And I had to laugh because I do not. So as I've been working fiction into my writing routine also, I've had some success with a scaled back version of, I think it was Ashley Maynard who was talking about poking a project every day. I make myself poke it every weekend. Just moving forward, you open the document, you make some edits, you tell yourself you only have to do one edit, and then from there you get going a little bit and you'll do, or I end up doing you know, more than that, and usually maybe 10 pages or so. So just being able to inch along and have some forward momentum is really important. And so I'm figuring out more ways to do that and listening to you guys also to get some ideas because it's always a struggle to figure that out. It's really hard. I think that's the biggest challenge when you are working on something that's like big, a long project. And to be honest, I've been working on some short stories and it's hard for that even. But just like to get a chunk of time that's big enough to do something that feels meaningful, you know. But I, I think touching something or, you know, just being in touch with your creativity is also important. Do you keep writing poetry like you've been writing your novel however long, but do you keep writing poetry sort of Is that just like how you live every day or? Well, I haven't stopped writing poetry and I don't see myself stopping writing poetry. I mean, it is sporadic where sometimes you're writing more, sometimes you're writing less. But I do like to do challenges sometimes like writing a poem a day for National Poetry Month, which I'm not doing this year because I know I have too many other things going on and I would end up just feeling bad about myself. But the advantage of those kind of challenges for me is it forces you out of your regular routine where, you know, I have a particular way that my brain works when I'm writing poems. And so when I'm forced to write something every day for a poem, 
I end up writing these poems that don't sound anything like I've written before, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. And like our writing prompts, those always sound like not my usual writing, but I also really enjoy that, you know? Yeah, me too. Like I've, I've done some playing around also with poems that will borrow grammatical structures from other poems and then go through and substitute words. And then you gradually spin them off into your own poems and something totally different. So I love that you can do that with writing, that you can start in a different place and make it something that is just new and something that is not something that you have done before. Yeah, that was actually, um, you sent one of your tiny letters was an exercise that you did with that kind of a poem. And it was, that was one of, that was the first time I'd ever seen that done. And it was, it was really interesting. And I don't know, we may use that later on as a writing prompt. Oh, thanks. You Okay, you have been reading for a while then, because I think I was doing some with the poet Becky and Fritz Goldberg off of her poems, which is an idea that I got in a workshop that I took with Brooklyn Poets taught by Cynthia Cruz and found this poet and found her poems also work really well for that because she writes with this really lush language that a lot of the nouns carry a lot of weight. So if you switch out the nouns, it becomes a totally different poem. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so on that topic, what's the most important thing to you for growing your craft and improving your writing? Is it taking workshops? Is it just lots of practice? What is what do you do specifically for that? I think continuing to do it is the major thing. I do try to always look for opportunities to learn more, which I don't necessarily limit specifically to poetry workshops, because I think it's also really useful for me to end up doing work in other disciplines and it ends up helping whatever I'm doing in another one. So looking for opportunities to learn more about photography and to learn more about playwriting. That is something I've been interested in a while that I've sort of written some plays and drafts of plays, but I never really know exactly what to do from there. And so I'm interested in trying out different directions and maybe learning how to write songs and seeing how that affects my poetry. The other thing that has been really the most useful thing for me is this tiny letter, which did come out of the National Poetry Month poems because I was really jealous of all of my poet friends who started blogs that just put up their poems that they wrote every day in National Poetry Month, that's terrifying. I don't think I would ever do that. Because I like to have a chance to look later and edit and think, all right, does this actually work? And usually I find a couple lines that I hate and want to change before I have anybody else read them. So I decided, well, I do kind of want people to read these poems, but also one other convention within the poetry world and literary magazines is if you put a poem on the internet, many journals will consider that published. So it's no longer eligible to be published in that journal. So my emails are sort of a way around that also because they're not published. I have a pretty small and an audience that I really love and appreciate because I can see how many people open and click on things. And it amazes me that I can publish a poem in a journal and I don't necessarily hear very much about it or people reading it. And I send out an email and I can see there are all these people who are reading it and who respond to me. And I'm really glad that I was able to create that community. And it's been a really fun way to meet people also. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you keep that schedule going? Well, I I started out very strict. So I started it in May of 2015, 2016, one of those years. And originally my plan for myself was that I would send out two poems a week of the poems that I wrote every day during National Poetry Month, but it would give me an incentive to revise and keep going from there. And after I finished editing those poems and finished really sending out that batch, became a little bit more sporadic where I wouldn't have 
a set schedule. But if I didn't do it in a while, I would start to feel sort of weird. (laughs) And so I think probably the longest gap that I've had on that is maybe every month. And that's another example of something where I want to be moving forward and moving ahead and continuing to do it. But if it's not on an extremely strict timetable, that's okay with me. Yeah, I think we're asking because we're not very good at keeping up with our tiny letters. So, uh. <laughs> I know, but I think that's fine because I think there's a lot of self-imposed pressure. I get a lot of tiny letters and I often see notes like, I'm so sorry that I didn't send this out on Sunday night when I was supposed to. And I don't think anyone cares. And, oh, and that's actually part of what I was thinking about, about a pep talk, is that no one cares. And that's freedom. That's an amazing gift. And I was thinking about the phrase no one cares in particular because it's something that uh, my older brother when he was in high school would say. And at the time, it, it was sort of in a negative light. But as I continued to think about that as a writer, I thought, that is amazing. No one cares, and that is a gift. And if anyone does care... That is even more of a gift because there is so much going on. There are so many things to read. There are so many things to do other than reading. To have somebody read your work and not only read it, but think about it, or better yet, write something about it, write a review, any of that, that is incredible. So I used to have a lot of anxiety about parents and family and people reading poems of mine that I was a little nervous about for whatever reason, whether they had some usually really only vaguely sexual content. I don't really write that many poems that are incredibly sexual, but I do have some poems, especially in my first chat book, where I thought, all right, maybe it's better if I don't mention this to grandparents and so forth. And of course, one of my aunts ended up giving my grandma a chat book anyway, and she wrote to me and she said, Oh, and you know, I learned a couple new words. I looked them up in the dictionary. Like she actually engaged with it. And I thought, you know what? I was so nervous about this. And I thought that is, that is a gift to have somebody read. And even if somebody does have a critique or they feel uncomfortable, if they're reading you, that's amazing. <laughs> so I, yeah, I try I to keep that. that more in perspective, but I, I do occasionally sometimes still get anxious about it, but definitely on a smaller level than I did when I was just starting out and especially starting my tiny letter also, which has a lot of family and longtime friends who read it. Yeah, there's always that tension, but that's a really good pep talk. So we'll excerpt that and put it as pep it's talk. It's fun. It's a, it's a fun way to kind of get to know people better also in my extended family that I don't know that well. And one of the last times that I was in the town where I grew up, which is Appleton, Wisconsin, I did a reading with a, another poet at a bookstore and a ton of my family came and it was so fun and I'm just really <laughs> grateful to have that kind of support and to you know it's a it's a gift when anyone cares at all yeah no that sounds really magical actually but it is really easy to our dad my dad I think Megan's dad as well as a subscriber to our tiny letter which <laughs> my dad calls my YouTube so uh, I like it <laughs> that's good yeah <laughs> but yeah no I think that is such a gift when people are giving you attention um I think it's really like I don't mean that in a it sounds weird but like people's attention is such a scarce resource you know oh I I agree completely and I think often we have a cultural idea or something people say where oh they just did it for attention but I also don't think it's necessarily a bad thing as a human to want that I think all 
well, maybe not all, but almost all humans want some kind of attention or validation or just feeling heard, really. And I think that's one thing that writing offers to writers. Is that a, that time to really feel heard and to connect with somebody? Yeah, I think that connection and the magic of having just even one reader, right, that like really understands what you're trying to say. Absolutely. And then more than that is great. Yeah. Yeah. And it works both ways because I think also the reader comes to a book and says, you know, this person is saying what I wish I could say. And so it's almost like the reader also feels that being heard and validated. And it's absolutely, you know, it's a symbiotic thing, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, how often have you read something in a book that made you feel less alone? I think that's a big part of why why we read and why we write. I mean, it's a part, it's definitely a part of why Olivia and I do this podcast in the first place is we had been trying to write for so long. And then we started spending time not writing together necessarily. We have sort of a weird writing partnership in that we very rarely show each other our work. It's not a critical partnership. It's more of not even accountability. It's more of just talking about in general, that like we do on this podcast now, just the frustrations and the things and the ups and downs that we go through. And we realized we didn't feel like there was any place out there where people were sharing what we were sharing, which was the struggles of finding the time when you have a day job that you don't want to quit. You know, there's a lot of talk about it being like this, this path where the destination is quitting your day job and working full time. And we didn't feel like that was our destination. And so we thought like, surely we're not the only ones out there. Yeah, well, I I think I'll add to that, too, that a big part of that practice for me is self-forgiveness. Yeah. Because we all try to have time to do everything that we want to do. And some days and some weeks, it doesn't happen. And so I think that it's very important to be able to not take one perceived failure as I'm a failure forever and I'm never going to finish this novel or I'm never going to finish this poetry book. (laughs) And it's so easy to fall into that mindset, right? Of thinking, oh, well, if I didn't write today, I'm never writing again and I'm never going to have a good idea. But that's probably not true. Probably. I mean, I can't 100% guarantee it, but I'd say, you know, 99.9%, right? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to correlate. I mean, it's your choice tomorrow, right? As well or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really bad at thinking like, oh, this week is really hard. That means I'm never, the word never comes up a lot. Like I'm never going to finish this or I'm never going to whatever. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the poker project once a week or once a day or whatever works for you can really come in handy. Because I have had days when I thought, oh, I really don't have time to, to work on this. I really don't want to. Maybe I could just skip this one weekend. And I think, no, I have to open the document. I have to do something small. Yeah. So then it's like put in a comma or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. So at least at least you're moving forward. So even if you just do that for as long as it takes to finish, you will finish eventually. Whereas if you don't yeah. do anything, then you risk not finishing eventually. So I, I try to think in those terms and to set goals that are pretty small sometimes. And and I think it really does help to have somebody who is giving you a nudge sometimes. And I ended up getting to have that kind of friendship with one of my friends who was doing National Novel Writing Month at the same time as me, which is how I wrote the first draft of this novel that I'm working on now. And so just being able to see in the tracker on the website how many words are you up to and here we go like I can see my ticker moving up she's gonna see it if mine's not moving up and so we ended up sending some text back and forth and just like all right well you need to write tomorrow you need to just do a little bit and that's also a, a, the National Lab Writing Month project I think is another example of doing a little bit every day and having it turn into something that's bigger just by virtue of moving forward. So did you do a whole 50,000 word manuscript in that month? 
I did one nano. Okay. Yeah, cool. I did. It's a project. That's awesome. Thank you. It's a project I'd been wanting to do for a really long time, and I had it in my head, and I thought I need to just do this, otherwise I'm going to regret not doing it. So I'm at a point where I am fluctuating wildly in my editing between feeling like it's pretty good and feeling it like it's the worst thing ever written, which I hear is normal. <laughs> it is completely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, that's totally good. normal. <laughs> like, in fact, um, we're recording this before it comes out, but our episode tomorrow, which for our listeners will be episode 32, I think. Um, so is it's the previous episode. Is the previous, <laughs> right. Um, it's time travel. In this actually point. all about revisions. Oh, okay. Okay. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Well, my number one advice is when you're going through and you do see the things that you think is wonderful, is like make a note of that. Put if you've printed it out, put a star next to it or or if if you're just reading on your screen, like copy it and paste it into a file that's like the wonderful things that I've written. So when you are feeling really super low, you can go back and you can read those things that do kind of like make you smile and make your like heart glow at you know, what you've, what you've managed to accomplish. Oh, that's such a good idea. I'm finding that the most fun parts for me to reread are parts where I am talking about a very specific barn experience. And I did work at a horse camp myself as a teenager for years and years from basically from when I was 15 to when I was 21 and the program director. And I love stumbling across these details, like how at the end of the day you end up with hay in your bra. And what exactly it was like to have these giant flies called duck flies that are like house flies on steroids. And you have to instruct all of the kids that if it lands on their horse, they need to hit him with a loud wha-bam. Because otherwise, just stuff like that. It's been, it's been really fun to kind of get a little nostalgic about aspects of my own experience that I'm working in. And of course, most of it is not that, but it's that's what I'm enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. But those details are really nice. Yeah. I've got like my favorite scenes in my novel, I think, are like conversations I've had or something where you're just like, this is ridiculous that this is happening. And then, you know, even in the moment, you're like, I'm totally going to use this. Right. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what do you, what does your process look like for putting together a chat book? And then how would you compare that to putting together your novel? I mean, do you do you go into a chapbook knowing that you're going to do it and you kind of collect things on a theme like you did in Too Many Humans of New York has a definite theme of things that you see in, in your experiences. But or is it kind of one of those things where you sit down and you're like, wow, I've written all of these poems and you sort of pick them out and collect them together? For me, it's usually more of the last option where I look at what I've written recently and I think, oh, this is kind of all falling along a specific theme or a specific tone. Most of the poems in Bad Baby were poems from that first time that I did National Poetry Month and wrote a poem a day. Bad Baby was the poem that I wrote on April 1st. And I realized that a lot of the poems that I wrote over the course of the month had sort of this, oh, I hate the word feisty, but I kind of want to say feisty or sort of this aggression, but also in a humorous way. And so a lot of the ideas that I was playing with, I could see the poems on the pages next to each other, kind of talking to each other. And often what I'll do when I'm arranging manuscripts, and I got this idea from Michelle Valadares, who's my thesis advisor at City College of New York. She said that she likes to print out quarter size pages. So it's like you've got four pages on one big page and then you print it out and you cut it up and then you use a wall and you put them on the wall or the floor if you have an apartment that's bigger than my apartment in New York. And you can rearrange all of them. 
until you can see, oh, okay, this poem kind of talks to that one and that one talks to the other one. And I even started color coding for my full-length manuscript that I'm sending out right now where I'm going, all right, the red ones kind of have a religious theme going on. The blue ones have more of sort of a romantic or sexual vibe happening. And some of them have both, so they're red and blue. So that's a way that I like to rearrange and find out which ones also on an ongoing basis talk to each other. And I like having that visual representation of you walk past because you're going to the kitchen to get something to eat and you look at the poems and you think, hmm, no, I'm going to swap these two. For Too Many Humans, it was definitely in a particular mindset where I had written several poems that were in this sort of stream of consciousness format and just things that I was observing. And so there were some really obvious poems that I thought, okay, well, these are definitely going to go in there. Uh, and then I had to look at some other poems that I'd written and, and think, oh, these ones are sort of in the same tone and I can move those around. But the, the big challenge really also is to figure out what do you do with a manuscript that's in a particular tone that maybe you're not writing in anymore, which is kind of where I am with my full length manuscript that I'm sending out or that I have been sending out because it is poems that I mostly wrote when I was in graduate school and I don't really write those kind of poems anymore. And I don't know what else I can really edit, but I also feel like if I try to write new poems, they're not going to quite fit with the old poems. So it's, it's tricky to kind of arrange. And I have been having some friends read it and give me comments and give me their suggestions because eventually you get so close to your project that you can't really see it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did you want to, Ovid, did you want to switch gears now and ask our big burning question that we've been dying to ask Abigail? <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Okay, well, I don't know if you have listened yet to our episode about where we just started talking about the conversation surrounding day jobs in the publishing world and why, but we just really, and I know that you come from a nonfiction, mostly background um, in publishing, which, and I do too, as an indexer. And so I know that day jobs are sort of credentials for authors of nonfiction books. You know, it's like, you know, so-and-so is a psychologist in New York, and that's why she wrote this book about developing brains and things like that, which is, it is, that is different from uh, the fiction world, but there's been some conversation, and we've had this conversation um, on here a lot about why it seems to be like this big secret. Like, if you have a day job, you keep it a secret in your bio, and is there, what we, I mean, I guess what we come down to is... One, there's this perception that readers aren't interested. They just want your book. And two, this idea that if you admit that you aren't living solely off your book, then that means you're not a good enough writer to do that. And therefore, their book's not worth reading. What's the deal? But is <laughs> that like, I'm, I'm yeah, really the interested question, in that question. Because have... I think you're right. And I also think that poets also do not mention day jobs. And most people do not assume that poets are making all their money off their poetry. But... More typically, you'll see in a poetry bio, you know, if they teach somewhere, sometimes they'll put in, you know, associate professor of poetry at wherever. And they'll also list, here are all the journals that I've published in. And so I do think that there is a perception, and I think about this sometimes with my various jobs too, of that somebody will take you less seriously if you show that you are in a couple different fields or you're doing a few different things. So if I talk about my part-time job when I'm at my full-time job, is that going to make somebody think that I am less committed to it or less interested in it or for whatever reason? Or if at my part-time job, if I'm teaching lessons and someone hears, oh, she's not full-time, 
how is that going to change the perception of my work? So I would imagine that some amount of that mindset might be creeping into the bios. Um, but I would be I would be curious about other people's answers to, to that too. I think for me, usually if I'm doing a bio for a literary journal, I wouldn't mention that I'm also a book publicist or writing instructor because it doesn't necessarily tie into what I'm doing. But for example, though, if I were going to put my bio in, if my mouth to God's ears, if this novel eventually gets published, I would totally put in that I'm a horseback riding instructor because it's it's directly relevant to, yeah. to what I'm doing in that. So I, I don't know beyond that. It's, I think it's a really interesting question. There, so there's like two aspects to that. One is it, that makes sense to me for like the bio that goes on the back of your book or in that inside back flap. But on the other hand, it, and you're really upfront on your, your website has all of the things that you do. I mean, you're pretty upfront about the fact, you know, you're a publicist and you're a horseback riding instructor. And it's it's like a pretty clear but bio of whole picture of you, which I think when people go to an author's website, that's what they want, right? Like they're looking to get to know the author a little bit better and find out more information. And that's also a place though, where it's hidden and you don't, you don't see it. And they won't even mention the fact that they have a day job, like on Twitter, if they have, you know, an active Twitter account, because their readers don't want to know and things like that. And I feel like those are places where, you know, you kind of are putting yourself out there as like a whole human and to hide these aspects because it's not quote your brand is it's just very perplexing to me. I think that's so. totally what it is often is that it doesn't fit into your brand. <laughs> of who you would like to present yourself as on Twitter. And I was thinking, I've been thinking about day jobs really for years because I'm now remembering that when I was in graduate school, I went to this conference where I went to a panel on life after the MFA. And I thought, oh, like that sounds interesting. I'd like to know like what life might be like. And everybody on the panel was a teacher, everyone. And I was a little perturbed by that. And they all also taught at the same program. And I thought there's really more paths that you can take after you get an MFA than always teaching. And especially with academia being the way it is and having it be hard to find a full-time position and all of these other things, I think we also need to be aware that you can be a writer without teaching writing or teaching writing and that it's a path that is an option. And I did an interview for the rumpus with the poet Victoria Chang, who does write and talk about her day job. And I thought that it was really interesting to talk to her and to just see she's this very successful poet now. She's published a bunch of books. She's got awards. She's I really admire her. And she also has this full-time job that she that she talks about. And I think it's important to have those conversations. Yeah, because what I was going to ask is you said basically nobody makes money or not enough money uh, from poetry. And so within the poetry sort of circles, like are people, do people talk about their day jobs? Like do people... I guess, what is the discussion about that? Or do people not talk about that? They're just talking about poetry, which would also be okay, you know? Oh, well, people definitely kind of talk about their, their day jobs too. And I think also with your friends, you're always talking about what's going on at work, how things are going, interesting things that have happened, irritating things that happen. So yeah, I think it's definitely part of the everyday conversation that people have. Just not public conversation. I just think it's really interesting because like on one level, I do understand everything that you're saying. It's like you're trying to make it as a writer. And so you want to like develop that part of you. And so why would you be talking about your day job? Um, but but I, I, I don't think I'd make that argument for myself. And also, it's interesting for me to hear you mention your website because I think I told you in an email that I've been trying to 
finish off projects that I've been thinking about for years and years. And one of my projects was to finally make myself a website. And I did it because I was giving one of my authors at work a hard time about not having a website. And I thought, you know what? All right, I should really go ahead and just make one for myself. And I think when I was setting it up and wanted to put these different parts of my life, one thing that I am interested and hoping is true is that the different parts of my life will help the other parts. And it's easy to get into this idea that if you're not doing something 100% full throttle, that what else even matters? And I hear this idea a lot in books that I read, and I read books about horse training, and you'll see stuff like, you need to do this many hours of this before you get any good at it, and you should be out there every day doing this. And it always makes me feel really terrible about myself. But I also read something recently in a magazine called Sidelines. They're doing an interview and a feature on a stable called Athelion that's in New Jersey. And about this mindset that whatever you bring with you to the, to the barn or wherever else you're going, those parts of your life can help you. And sure, like if you have intellectual interests and love to read ancient writing about horses or you love to explore psychology, that's all something that can help you learn to ride, absolutely. And so with that also, I think my being a poet does help my vocalicity because I think I'm able to more relate to the authors that I'm working with and they can see that this is something that I'm also working on and trying to find these balances between doing one thing and doing another thing. And so I, I hope that there are ways to synthesize and have one thing help the other. And that's something that I'm trying to do in my own life. It's not real life that much that people are able to quit their job and work full time, although that's not what my Google alert on full time <laughs> working and writing says. Apparently, everyone. <laughs> I'm so curious about this Google alert. Do you get something in it all the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's always like these bios, it's, it's always like to write full time is like basically the phrase where I that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking like for full time as in job plus writing somewhere else in the article. But it's always to write full time. And I guess the question that people always ask is like, when did you quit work so you could write full time? And it's just really fascinating because I really thought there would be more results that come up that are relevant for us. But there's not. It's actually I just don't understand. I mean, like. I also get that writing should or art should be a job, but in our current world, it isn't always. But I also like live my whole life through Google or anything I'm interested in. I put a Google alert on. <laughs> I love that. It's actually pretty disturbing if you go into my Gmail inbox. <laughs> well, I think it's also a lot of pressure if writing is the only thing that you are doing in the course of a day. And you don't have to be anywhere at any particular time. And if you don't write anything good, you feel like your day is a waste. So I would say the perk of these lives where they're more fragmented and you're doing lots of things is the pressure is off a little. But of course, the downside of that is it could be easier to stop and to kind of lose sight of that part of yourself. So it's, it's yeah, tricky to figure out. Yeah, like how do you balance cutting yourself some slack and then just letting yourself completely off the hook? Exactly. Megan's favorite question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always convinced that I'm just like the laziest person alive. And so it's my own personal quest for enlightenment is that balance. Yeah, and I think, I think we're always on that quest on some level, right? I just, 
I don't know that I've ever met anyone who, when you had an in-depth conversation about this, seemed to have it 100% completely figured out. So that makes me feel a little bit better. I guess it's it just comes back around to, if that's the case, and people talk all the time about authenticity, I'm sure that's something that you hear a lot. Why then? You know, why do we spend so much effort and why do people spend so much effort trying to project a brand? You know, people are not brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but okay, so what's the publicist answer versus the person answer from you? <clears throat> well, I mean, I... I have to think about this for a second. Well, I'm trying to think when do I talk about authenticity with authors that I work with. And the main time is when we're talking about social media. And I have the approach of I think authors should be posting on social media themselves for the most part. I think if somebody were to hire me to just post as them as the author, it wouldn't really have the same kind of community and give and take and these conversations that happen. Um, so when I'm talking about authenticity, I am saying, go ahead, start a Twitter account, start posting things if you want. I don't think it's hundred percent necessary if you're just going to post once and then let the tumbleweeds blow through, like after your book comes out, that's not really the most useful thing. It's, it's useful if it's something that is useful for you as a way to have conversations and connect with people. And so personally, I, I wouldn't really discourage from somebody from talking about other parts of their life. I, I agree with you that I think it's good to have a whole person on there and to not seem like a robot. I think we've all seen these social media accounts that maybe there is a real person, but it just sort of reads like a robot where it's all, you know, eight hashtags in every post and the bios are like hashtag marketer hashtag social media expert and i i don't think that that is something that's really useful um but i don't know sometimes these people have tons and tons of followers i do think that for social media we put too much emphasis on how many followers and not enough on creating community of people because my, I mean, my favorite parts about using, and I'd say Twitter in particular is really my favorite social media place. And I really like the conversations that can come up sometimes and to just have a chance to get to know somebody in a way that maybe I wouldn't meet them in my everyday life or maybe they live somewhere else. And it's, it's not quite as nice as LiveJournal was, which I'm still nostalgic about that particular time <laughs> when I think you also got to know more about people's thoughts on yeah. a deeper level because I because I, I think when I hear or when I'm in a lot of conversations with social media people talk about oh it looks like everybody else's life is so great and I think there is a lot more pressure now to present this image of the perfect person whatever that looks like to each individual person whereas on live journal people wrote a lot about their problems people wrote a <laughs> yeah. lot about there's this I mean, I was also in high school when I mostly was writing in live journal in college, but people would write, oh, I have a crush on this boy. He doesn't know I exist and I'm fighting with my parents or, you know, whatever else. So you would not see these glossy, highly curated images of other people. So I, so I think, I think to answer your question more directly, I think my publicist answer and my writer answer are the same. I think, I think it's good to be a whole person on social media. And I think that if you aren't, I think it's harder to connect with people. Yeah, we used to be part of a Zanga group. Like there was a group of like 20 <laughs> yes. of us that had these Zangas. And you're right. I read mine recently or went back and read some of the old ones. And it's like really embarrassing actually yes. how honest <laughs> I was. It's actually really hard to read because it's like, what? I wrote this on the internet? Yeah, like, I have all about? of that. And especially it was a time when the internet felt so much more private. So I did write some things publicly that now I think 
I would not do that publicly. Most, it was mostly about people I thought that were attractive, and I would, you know, use a fake name or be vague. But I am sure that if they read it, they would be able to recognize themselves. And I would, I would not do that now. It yeah. is really interesting, but I love that as well because I just had, again, like authenticity or something there's something really raw about it and I really like that is gone no one will ever use the internet in that way you know I had an idea a couple weeks ago that I was going to start updating live journal again and I did update it one time because I used to also write all of these entries about things that I did and plays that I saw and movies that I saw and art exhibits and yeah. what was going on with my friends and it was really fun to reread those those kind of entries and there's a poet named Nadia de Vries, who's Dutch, who is writing in Live Journal, and she mentioned it, and I thought, oh yeah, like this could be it. Like I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start writing again. Maybe I'll still do that. Um, but I do think that there is something that has been lost from that culture. Well, and like adult life, I don't know. I can't write about my job, and so that's like basically everything I do. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, it's partly about the time and the interesting level of things that happen to you, or the fact that I can't share them. Okay, but yeah, that's a good point. Was And also, I think, you know, we're all 15, 20 years older. And I think with maturity, there does come a more of a circumspection. And, you know, for instance, I have a family. And so I wouldn't talk about them in ways I would talk about myself 20 years ago, because that's not fair to them, right? It's their their privacy as well. And of course, having a partner, his and my, my life is so tied up with his that if I do talk about things, then it would be talking about him as well. And that's not that's not fair. And also, I think, I mean, the, with maturity, I think there does come just less of an interest in telling people about things no I see I really miss the telling and I miss the record as you're saying and I used to like record stupid conversations with cashiers at sandwich shops you know it wasn't like really <laughs> deep stuff but I you know it was like there was something there that I wanted to tell other people about I miss all of that yeah it's just yeah. it's partly time it's partly like I'm now having that same conversation every single day so it's not interesting anymore <laughs> like you know or whatever um, but that makes me sad as well because that's not like the adult life I want to have Right. And there's a certain format also where you will see those kind of posts sometimes on Twitter or or I mean, Tumblr I still. Too. Yeah, Tumblr I was gonna, I was going to say Tumblr sometimes, too. Yeah. But they're often in this more joke like format or there's a certain grammar to them that are that's different. So I like the aspect of Live Journal that was more storytelling that was not strictly formatted into a small box or a type of grammar or anything like that it was a little bit more free it's yeah performative. But I get, like, right exactly yeah. that's a good word for it but circling back to tiny letter which is sort of where we started this whole conversation uh, I think sometimes that can have that same thing and that is sort of how I use mine my personal tiny letter it goes out like once a month or something but it will be something that in the old days I would have blogged about or put up or it's sort of a couple of things that I would have thought through and probably written more raw but it still like has that much less processed feeling and like that's sort of how I use it. So yeah, and that feels less private. I mean, less public because it's, you know, not on the internet. Right. I mean, there's the the decision of do you publish the archives or do you not publish the archives, which yeah. I have yeah. I have mine. So they are not published because I think also then really then your poems are published if your archives are published. Yeah. And I and I have heard that argument too that Tiny Letter is bringing back a little bit more of the live journal ethos which I think I think there definitely is is truth to that. 
And I've been I've been trying to do a little more of that also in my tiny letter because it used to be very strictly, here's a poem, the end. And I got a lot of nice feedback when I started adding in, here are some of the books that I've been reading and here's what I think about this and here's this event coming up and here's what I was thinking about when I wrote this poem. Just a little bit of extra stuff in there. Um, and it's it's been fun to do. I definitely have pretty lofty goals also for reading in any given year. Um, I do the, I've done the Goodreads challenge a couple of times now and um, I'm going for 52, which so far I'm a little ahead. So we'll see how it continues to, to go, but I'm always looking for ways also to engage a little bit more with, with what I'm reading rather than just sort of reading it and checking it off. I have a dormant blog that was for reading as well. Um, yeah, I have various like old rooms scattered around the internet. I still should check into it. <laughs> Don't we all at a certain point? I mean, we've had to make yeah. accounts for so many things. I do sometimes think about just all of those accounts sitting yeah. there. Yeah. Well, and so what I think is interesting, like not to, but to kind of like circle things back and tie them up um, in what we were talking about is I'm just curious. This is just sort of, I mean, there's no real answer to this, but I think it will be interesting in 5, 10, 15 years to see the state of book publicity and kind of openness and the changes that may or may not happen because as people get older, I mean, people like us who are familiar with being whole people on the internet are, you know, now approaching mid-career. I mean, not mid-career necessarily as a writer, but, you know, it's been 15 years since I graduated. We gra Olivia and I graduated from college. And so, you know, that point and then just everyone behind us has grown up with the internet and being presenting some sort of something on the internet. And, you know, maybe there's this chunk of us in the who were at the beginning who were able to present whole selves. And now maybe there's a group of people coming up behind who present curated selves or performed selves. I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about these kinds of like generational generalizations any in general to like pull that <laughs> word out as long as I can. But it, it will be interesting to watch and see, um, especially because there's like just economic realities too behind the fact that writers do have day jobs and they have changed. Publishing is just different and people get paid differently and there are no... The, I've heard a lot that the teaching jobs are going away and it's harder and harder than it was maybe say in 1980 uh, to get a teaching job as a writer. And um, so it will, be, it will be interesting to watch and to see how this happens. But I think it has been, I guess, gratifying and almost vindicating to see this conversation popping up in more publics and more paid attention to spheres than like our little podcast. Yeah, I think everyone is preventing themselves in some way, even if we feel like we are not. I think that's also something that we all do in everyday life. But I think the other part of the conversation that I think about is the idea of change. And I think so much about social media has changed. And yet sometimes you hear this mindset of, oh, well, I'm not going to use email anymore. I'm just going to do everything on Facebook message, like as though that's not going to change. And of course, you know, there's no more Friendster. There, MySpace has kind of fallen out. There's so many things that Friendster. have kind of, yeah, right? Right? And yet there's this idea of, oh, well, I better get lots of Snapchat followers because that's going to propel my career, which maybe it will, but more likely people are going to eventually move on to the next thing. So one of the things that I like about Tiny Letter also is then 
you have an email connection with somebody and email's been around for a really long time. I would suspect that email is probably going to outsurvive a lot of the popular social media platforms. So rather than connecting with people on one very specific website, where if that website goes, you don't know what happened to them, being able to connect with people on different levels and different places and have multiple ways to get in touch. Which sometimes, sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. though, it's too many places to get in touch, of course. But anyway, that's why I like email and down with Facebook message. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook message is just, it's like useful only when you need to contact people that you don't have any other way of contacting them. It's like LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot for like my work. Like, where is this person? Where do they work now? You have no idea. And like, why would you keep your email contact list up to date? Um, and it's also like how my dad calls me is Facebook Messenger. But otherwise, you know, nothing like, yeah, I don't like Facebook Messenger. Yeah, LinkedIn can be really useful for book publicists too, because often the notes that I'll find on a website are out to date, out of date, where this mm -hmm. guy hasn't worked there in years. And then I look at his LinkedIn and I'm like, oh, okay, that's why he didn't respond to my email at this place is he hasn't worked there in a year and it still says that he does on the website. But Facebook message is always where dragons live for me. So I just decided yeah, I'm not okay. going to do that. Uh, I hate the whole system where, first of all, you can't turn them off on a personal page. You can only turn them off if you have a business page. And mm. I'd say most of the time, whenever I feel bad about not reading them and I think, all right, I'm going to go in and see what's in my fake message. It's people wanting me to buy their MLM products or some random dude I'm not Facebook friends with saying he liked a poem or all this sort of stuff in there sort of semi-creepy stuff <laughs> yeah yeah and um i just think it's a less efficient email i definitely can't replace email i mean we have a kind of uh at some point we'll probably have to abandon this but we try not to use we don't use facebook for this podcast and we don't use twitter because we basically like don't have that much time and also like they're not things that we naturally go to anyway so it would just be like more work to do um but i did read your twitter feed i really enjoyed it oh like thank it, you it had that like refreshing kind of fun optimism I don't know not even optimism but like a fun approach to life is I enjoyed reading that but that would be like how I would want to do Twitter if we did Twitter but I don't think I'm capable of doing Twitter that way so well I think I think back to your question about what I also advise as a, as a publicist and that other part of my brain there's often people who want to dive into every single platform at once and their friend told them they should be on Pinterest, so they want to make Pinterest and they want to make this and this and this. And I really think it's more useful to pick what you're actually going to do and what you feel comfortable with. And to have maybe two places that you update regularly and you have a community rather than having 10 and then eight of them you, pub you publish something every five years. <laughs> yeah yeah or yeah where it's just like repeating it's like an echo chamber where it's the same picture on like everything I mean that's okay but you can't really engage with everything in, on every single platform or that's all you're doing which is right yeah I, def I definitely <laughs> do not like the auto posting stuff and especially my my least favorite thing when I see on Twitter well okay I have lots of least favorite things um, but one thing that really irritates me <laughs> is when people have the automatic Facebook post where every post on Twitter is just a link to Facebook and, what is yeah, what yeah. is the point there is no point people do not want to click over to your Facebook if they're on Twitter that's why they're on Twitter to begin with yes yeah. I just totally resent being forced to use Facebook yeah <laughs> yeah I, I hear Facebook that well going and Facebook down anyway, also so is, it's been harder and harder for businesses as I run a Facebook page for a small publisher and everything now with the algorithm makes it so much easier to get 
you're posting if you are a person who is not a business and you're posting to your friends as opposed to having the kind of business page where they click like because they want you to pay for advertising essentially. So yeah, it's okay. it's much trickier than it, than it once was. If you're, yeah. you know, if you have a page for yourself as a writer, you have your your business page on there. Whereas Twitter, I mean, Twitter has changed a little bit too in the way that they set up which posts you see first and, and stuff like that. But on Twitter still, you can hit the retweet button and mm. that post will be shared with more people and so on and so forth. Whereas Facebook share is a little bit not as good, in my opinion, at actually getting something seen by people. Yeah, that makes sense. Probably know a lot more about that than I do, but that's a useful insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always happy to talk about it. I think there are a lot of mysteries for a lot of people, and there are these platforms that we spend time on and we and have in our everyday life, but there's still all these sort of behind-the-scenes things that we don't always know. So I'm always curious to, to learn more about that. Yeah. yeah. We may have to have you back to talk about that later. All right. Yeah, that would be really good. Yeah, we're a little bit selfish in how we pick content for this. So maybe sometime when we're trying to publicize our books, we'll have you back and be like, how do we do this? I think that's the only way to be because what it, what would be not being selfish? Talking about things you're not interested in? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, at some point we could ask that anyway, but it'll be more like I think we'll be so engaged if one of us is publicizing a book and then, you know, you just have a better conversation that way. So selfishness is underrated sometimes. And I don't, you know, I don't, especially for women, I don't think often what we think of as selfishness really is selfishness at all. Good point. I like that. And I like that as a sort of ending. I think we have taken more than an hour of your time, actually. But um, thank you so much for your comments. It's my pleasure. Then, Thanks I, for like, having me. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, this was a really fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you on Tiny Letter. Yes. And maybe Live Journal. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> we'll see if I update that again. You have to. Well, now that I've talked do. about it on this show, I will update it. So, yes. yes. Okay, good. I'll send a link in my Tiny Letter if I feel brave. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Karikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.